Over the run of George Orwell's 1984, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard Kennedy School and the American Repertory Theater co-hosted a series of special panel discussions around questions of surveillance, totalitarianism, and the role of technology in popular uprisings. On February 23, 2016, James Waldo, Gordon McKay Professor of the Practice of Computer Science and Chief Technology Officer for Harvard University, joined ART's Artistics Programs Associate, Robert Duffley, for a talkback following a performance to discuss issues of technology and security. For more information about the American Repertory Theater, visit AmericanRepertoryTheater.org. For more information about the Ash Center, visit ash.harvard.edu. Uh, my name is Robert Duffley. I'm Artistic Programs Associate here at ART, and I'm thrilled to have joining us tonight Professor Jim Waldo. Will you thank me for joining him joining us? Uh, Dr. Waldo is the Gordon McKay Professor of the Practice of Computer Science in Harvard School of Engineering and Applied Sciences, where he teaches courses in distributed systems and privacy. Uh, and he also recently served as the Chief Technology Officer for Harvard University, where he was responsible for the architecture and implementation of the university's technology environment. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Uh, my pleasure. Let's go ahead and get started. Um, so this is such a visceral production to watch that I wanted to start by just asking you how you're feeling after, after watching the show. Not the, ch not the cheeriest yeah. of shows that I've seen here, but uh -huh. it's... Uh, it, as you, we were saying uh, out, out in the hallway, it's, it's amazing how much of that book got distilled in 101 minutes, yeah. especially given that they repeated one of the scenes a couple of times. It's pretty amazing. And one of the things that I think the production does so well, talking about bringing over themes and structures from the book, is the constant sense of danger. Um, I think I, I feel that in the back when I watch the show every night. Um, and I think one of the things that for these characters and for Orwell's characters as well, one of the most present dangers is that danger of being watched all the time, um, which in a theater is always sort of ironic. But um, for Orwell's characters, I think that danger grows out of these telescreens, these devices that serve purposes of entertainment and instruction as well of, as surveillance. And when Orwell was writing this, novel in 1948, those technologies might have been far off, but might not be now. Um, so as they're mopping up the blood behind us, um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit well, about how today's government... I can't imagine such a device. Yeah. Um, that, that would constantly monitor where you are, uh -huh. and what you're saying, and who you talk to. And so I'm, I'm, I'm glad that, that we're not in Orwell's 1984, it's actually much more pervasive than uh, anything Orwell ever thought about. The, uh, surveillance now. Surveillance now. Now, it's, it's not always government surveillance. Uh -huh. I think the, uh, the, the sort of paranoia of Orwell was that it was always the party that was watching, some authority figure, the, the entity that has a monopoly on violence. Yeah. And now we're just always being watched all the time. Mm -hmm. And we've grown so used to it, we don't even think about it. And it may be the government, or it may be companies. It may, you know, it 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 may be our our browser company. It may be our phone company. But we are always at least capable of being watched and tracked at any time. Uh, the uh, I the the course I teach in privacy. One of the standard 
exercises I have the students do is I, have them, I break them into teams and I have them go see how many surveillance cameras they can find between the river and the law school and from um, about the Radcliffe Yard over to the Museum Row. And right now the, uh, the, the top number is over 600. Do you count the cameras in their phones? Um, no, this isn't the cameras in their phones. This is the fixed surveillance cameras, which they take pictures of to map wow. on their phones. It's, it's been, there are some really nice, ironic things that have happened. I've, I've had uh, um, administrative deans call me up and complain because they saw a, they noticed on their surveillance cameras that people were taking pictures of their surveillance cameras. <laughs> and it's, it's sort of like you say, well, Wait a minute, think about this for a second. There's a symmetry that's missing here. Um, at one point there was another class uh, that was using drones to take pictures of my students taking pictures of the <laughs> surveillance cameras. Is that a grad class? And, and, and we were really hoping to get a surveillance camera picture of a drone taking a picture <laughs> of the students taking the picture of the, but we didn't get that far. Uh -huh. But it's, just, it's, it's ubiquitous. It's all over the place. And, and the students who have taken this class are never quite the same again, which is frightening in many other ways, um, because wherever they go after that, they're seeing the cameras. But we don't see them. They're invisible. So they also tend to put tape over the cameras on their laptops after this class. Uh -huh. So when we're thinking about the breakdown of surveillance conducted by municipal or federal surveillance versus surveillance conducted by private corporations. What's the breakdown there? Who's more likely to be watching us at any given time? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and as we are seeing right now, even if the government doesn't have an ability to see us and a private company does, the government will ask the private company to give them that information if they think it's necessary. So the, uh, the, the current discussion between the FBI and Apple is going to be very interesting to watch. Yeah. Uh, can I elaborate, please? For how many hours do we have? Yeah. So I was actually trained as a philosopher. I will not give you enlightenment. But um, this, this is a very complicated question, and I don't know all the facts of the matter. So there are a couple of things that this will turn on, I believe. One is whether or not the FBI is asking Apple just for the information that's on the phone, or whether, as the court order states, Apple is being asked to produce an instrument that the FBI can use to obtain the information from the phone. If it is, in fact, the latter, they have an instrument that can be used to obtain information from any phone like this. And the other question is whether what they are looking for is intelligence, which is just the information, or whether they're looking for evidence. The FBI tends to look to convict people rather than just obtain information. If something is evidence, then the instrument that is used to gather that evidence has to go through certain protocols to be considered forensically okay. Among those protocols are that you have to turn the instrument over to any defense lawyer who wants to test it. It has to be looked at by people who are um, in the science. And that means that the technique that would be used by Apple would be seen by an awful lot of people. And I don't believe it could be kept secret at that point. So 
if in fact what is being asked for is an instrument to obtain evidence that can be used in a courtroom, then Apple is being asked to produce something that will be discovered by people other than the FBI that will crack open that type of phone. And I think that's a very dangerous thing. And when we're looking at these cases, I think... That's the short answer. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Looking at these cases, I think there's an idea of privacy at the center of our concerns about these cases, which might not be present for the citizens of Orwell's world. Um, so, so looking at these contemporary issues, I wanted to ask if Americans' conception of privacy is universal at this point in time? Hardly. So one of the most interesting aspects on, uh, on privacy these days is how different the notion of privacy is in the United States versus in Europe. They have a very different notion of privacy. Mm -hmm. And in South America, which has a different notion of privacy. Mm -hmm. And of course, in parts of Asia and uh, Russia, where um, there is, shall we say, a very weak notion uh, of, of privacy. Even in the United States, we have multiple notions of privacy. We have notions of, uh, Roe v. Wade was decided as a privacy case. It was the privacy of control of your own body. Is that the same type of privacy as the information privacy that we talk about on somebody's phone? And is that the same type of privacy as the privacy of the information of, say, student records that are covered by uh, various sorts of laws? Privacy is a very slippery notion. The, the core idea in jurisprudence is the reasonable expectation of privacy, and it's not clear what that is anymore. It's been very loose over at least the past uh, oh, 120 years. Um, it's the sort of thing that students do theses on. Uh, in fact, she's right over there. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's very hard to do. So I, 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 I love working with it. But um, I don't know what the hell it is. Mm -hmm. And in a world of multinational technology corporations, are those differences in ideals of privacy causing tensions as we speak? Oh, my goodness. I had a, 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 a marvelous opportunity this last uh, winter to moderate a panel on privacy that included the French privacy commissioner and the lead lawyer from Google. And as hard as I tried to get them off the topic, all they would talk about was the right to be forgotten. Mm -hmm. And they nearly, these two very civilized, very educated people nearly came to blows uh, down at the Kennedy School. I, I have never been in a situation where I've been the moderating influence. Uh, but, but this was one where, where I was. Because the, the French privacy commissioner was saying, look, this right to be forgotten, that is a fundamental right. Privacy is a fundamental right. And so everybody should have that right. The lead counsel from Google was saying, look, it's fine for you to say that the French have this right. So if you go to google.fr, you will have the right to be forgotten. But if you go to google.com, sorry, France, you don't get to say. Of course, France says, yes, we do. His, his response was, well, you know, the, the Turkish government thinks that there was no Armenian genocide, and they have legislated on that. Do we have to take that out of Google for everyone? Mm -hmm. Well, of course, the French uh, uh, commissioner said, no, you don't have to do that, but the right to be forgotten is universal. So this is a case where if you are a multinational company, uh, you don't have a right answer. You have conflicting requirements that are being put on you. So as those companies continue to develop, what 
bodies or organizations do you see as being most effective in resolving those questions? Oh, there isn't one. And, and it's not clear what one could resolve those questions. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is part of the very interesting question around cybercrime. Crime used to be really convenient because when a crime was committed, it was committed in the jurisdiction of whoever the crime was against. Right? You robbed the bank, you had to be close to the bank. Now we have crimes being committed in the cyber area where the criminal at least appears to be located in, oh, say, Bulgaria mm -hmm. or Russia or China, although we can't even be sure of that because that may just be where the machine that they took over to do the crime was. And the crime occurs in the United States. Who has jurisdiction? Mm -hmm. I somehow, we were talking about this at dinner, I somehow don't see any nation giving up sovereignty to say we will create a transnational judicial body that will have the authority to prosecute these crimes. Mm -hmm. but, that's the, but we're certainly not being very successful at extraditing, say, the Bulgarian mafia for cyber crimes in the United States. So I don't see where this one ends. And that just reminds me so strongly of the three super states into which Orwell's world has been broken by the time of the novel. Well, yes, those of us at Harvard know this really well since we currently have two sets of state-level attackers trying to get into Harvard, one of which um, is located somewhere around Shanghai, mm -hmm. and the other of which is located somewhere around Moscow. Now, of course, we don't know that these are actual state actors, but I do know their sleeping habits. <laughs> and like thinking from the perspective of an average computer user on a Harvard network, what strategies are these attackers using in order to gain access to Harvard's network? Well, I can't actually tell all of those because that would be telling. But, uh, you know, if you're an average computer user, quite frankly, you're probably not interesting enough for these people to go after. Uh, you know, there's sort of standard things you can do. You know, you should encrypt your disk. Everybody should encrypt their disk. Um, sorry, uh, uh, sorry for the head of the FBI, but that's true. Uh, you should encrypt your disk. You should be uh, careful about clicking on links. Um, if email comes in, that's too good to be true. It is. Um, you know, the, the, the kind of phishing attacks that we get right now. We had one that I knew was a phishing attack because it was such a good Harvard website, it couldn't be one of ours. <laughs> um, it was just way too pretty. We don't do them like that. So, uh, you know, th that sort of care, you know, reasonable password hygiene, that, that will get most of us around everything. Now, I was for a while the CTO, thank God I was not the Chief Information Security Officer uh, because his life is not one I wish to lead. And what's the breakdown between those two roles? Well, so as, as CTO, I was fortunate. I was mostly strategic trying to figure out where we should be going. Uh -huh. The Chief Information Security Officer is responsible for the operational security of the Harvard network and computers. Okay. So he's the guy that in a meeting will suddenly sort of twitch because his phone is vibrating, pull his phone out, look at it and go, oh shit, and leave. And that's when you know he's going to have a really bad day. And, and he's been leaving a lot of meetings recently. Um, he, he, there are a lot of bad days. Actually, he loves doing that kind of stuff because that's the kind of junkies you get in those sorts of things. But this is, this is the, in some sense, the new normal where uh, because of the flexibility of the way we have designed the networks and the computers, um, it's very easy to, uh, to, to 
run these kinds of exploits. Mm -hmm. And as this technology and these threats develop, do you see them leading towards the type of political system that's represented in Orwell's world? Or do you think in the 50 years or so since the novel, we've moved towards different types of threats? Well, I think the threats are, are clearly different. They may be from the same actors. Mm -hmm. um, I think the, the, the sort of world that Orwell foresaw was not caused by the technology. The technology may have enabled it, hmm. but it was caused by the fears of the people and the ability to take power. So it was, it, it was not technology, it's what the technologists refer to as primate behavior. Primate behavior is really hard to change. Um, the, the technology will go as it does. And in fact, the, uh, probably the most troubling thing about the technology now is that it moves so much faster than the policymakers can react to that, that most of the technologists find the policymakers just irrelevant. You know, by, by the time the Apple case moves through the various courts, mm -hmm. especially if we only have eight Supremes, uh, by, the, by, by the time that is figured out, um, the, 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 it will be long gone. The technology will have changed uh, four or five times. So is there a distinct political danger in not reading the terms and conditions before you click accept? Or God, by I, that point, are we already threatened? Damn, I hope not. Because I don't, I don't read them either. Oh, that's good to hear. Um, <laughs> who would read that stuff? I mean, the, 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 the kinds of conditions that you read um, that are, are, are really more an indication of, in many cases, U.S. privacy law where we tend to be more worried, that the Europeans tend to be worried about corporations violating your privacy. We tend to be worried about the government violating our privacy. What that means is that our privacy laws, the enforcement mechanism is you get to sue. Mm -hmm. And so the laws are written very carefully to let lawyers sue each other and they cover very specific things. They're, they're not open to interpretation. European laws, on the other hand, just say, look, you have a right to privacy, we'll figure out what that means. Uh, and we'll let the government do it, which I find a little screwy, but it, it does have a larger coverage. So we would have to really figure out what we meant by privacy, and then we could enforce them through any sorts of terms and conditions or the ways that we actually govern these corporations. I, I find it odd that the the main guarantor of privacy on the internet in the United States is the Federal Trade Commission, and they do it by enforcing um, uh, fair uh, information practices and, uh, and making sure that you aren't being lied to. Mm -hmm. Having a privacy policy that says, we're gonna use any information we gather for whatever we want to and we'll sell it to whoever we can, would be just fine as long as they say that. Um, it's if they do something other than what they say that they can get uh, the FTC after them. Thank you. Well, I want to make sure we get time for questions from the audience. So if you have a question, I'm going to move around the house. And if you'll do me a favor, just wait until I bring you the microphone so that we can pick it up for the podcast. So we'll start over here. So I'll hum while he does this. <laughs> several years ago, I guess, um, David Brin ha published a book and one on privacy, and one of his suggestions was it's a given that, we're, that our government and businesses are going to know everything about us, and that in order to 
that we're not going to be able to stop that. So instead, open it up to everybody. In other words, let me as an individual, let you as an individual see everything that the government and the businesses can see. And that way it, it stops becoming a problem. Was his. So what are your feelings on that? Do you think that would help ease the situation at all? Well, so I love David Brin because he has access to drugs I haven't, or no, sorry. Um, I, in some sense, you know, the, the, the notion that privacy is really a problem of uh, non-symmetric information, uh, which, is, which is really what, what, what David has been pushing, is it's, it's a fascinating notion. I, I'm going to sound like Hillary Clinton here. It's, you know, I don't see the government giving up everything that it does somehow. And, and I actually expect that agencies like the NSA, we probably don't want them to give up everything that they know how to do because we're not the only people who are interested in that. So I actually think being, a, being able to have some area of information that is not known to others is important not just for governments but also for individuals. You know, I'm I'm really not thinking that I'd be willing if the government let me see you know every every bill that was being uh, put in Congress and I had all their information that they could see everything that happened inside my house. And I'm just not comfortable with that. So I do like to have some of these walls that go on. The question really is a question of trust, though. Do we trust that the government is not going to be abusing this? Do we trust that, that corporations are not going to be using the information? I also think there's, there's an interesting way that the conversation has gone, where because the government or because these corporations have gathered all this information, they somehow know all these things about us. And so we've, we've moved from they have the ability to know, they, they, they have the capability to know, to they actually know. And I don't think they actually know very much. I'm, I'm not that interesting. Most of us are not that interesting. That they actually know. Their computers may react in terms of information, but that's a different sense of knowledge. So again, I think, I think this is a very fuzzy area, and I don't know what the answer is. But I'm less concerned about somebody knowing everything about me, because I don't think they do, even though the information is there so they could. Any questions on this side of the room? We got one right here and one right there. Great, at least. So, if you could prognosticate a bit, looking back to what, say, Louis Brandeis would say now, if he were commenting the way he did a hundred plus years ago on the topic of privacy, and yourself prognosticating on. Is there somebody that you respect now who has a vision of where we will be in 30 years, uh, for better or worse, the way we look back at Brandeis having been prescient? Well, so of course, Brandeis was actually worried about the influence of technology on privacy. Uh, he was worried about this instant photography and, uh, and, and, and letterpress. So, you know, technology has been something that has made people worry about privacy for a long time. I'm not sure I know anybody now that I think of as really being able to look into the future another hundred years. I, I, on the technology front, I tend to think that my predictions become about 20% less likely for each year out. So that means after five years, ah, what the hell do I know? 
Um, and I could get evidence that it's less than five years on, on that. Um, there are some interesting science fiction writers who do things that I think are probably way closer to what's going to happen than anybody else. So when, when I want to think about the future, I read William Gibson. Uh, you know, Neuromancer was um, a long time ago. It was in the 80s. And he was pretty right. By the way, he did have a transnational group that did uh, um, cyber crimes, uh, the Turing Police. I would love to be uh, the commissioner of Turing Police. Um, and so, you know, that, that I think is where we get the best ideas. But, you know, how accurate that's going to be, I don't know. I think we have time for one more question. There was one right here. Hello. This is a plant, by the way. But. <laughs> uh, so in the play, in the novel, and in society today, there's this kind of culture of acquiescence when it comes to surveillance. People seem to be okay with it if it's in the name of national security or the convenience of having a phone or using Google Chrome or getting access to an app is worth them giving up their information or being monitored. So I was wondering if you have any ideas for what are some achievable steps we can give people to kind of activate to protect their privacy or safeguard against surveillance? And do you think there's any way to do this without giving up convenience, so the privacy convenience trade-off? Well, so I think one way of doing this is through education. Um, the more people know, the more likely they are to protect themselves against sort of random surveillance. I think there is a fair amount of uh, legislative pressure that has built up on some of the collection practices of corporations. So I think companies that used to have the idea that they would just collect everything and see what happened because, you know, it might be useful are becoming a lot more careful about what they collect. The pressure on the other side, by the way, is all of the work that is being done in the big data sciences where you really don't know what information is going to be interesting, so you grab huge amounts of information and do statistical analysis on it, and doing that in a privacy-preserving way is somewhere between impossible and even harder than that. So I, I worry about that tension more than I do about just people trading convenience. Uh, one of the things that has become really clear is that people value their own privacy much less than corporations and governments value the aggregation of information that people will give if they all give up their privacy. So that sort of imbalance is a tougher one. I think that is, is the one that David Brin should really worry about. That's the asymmetry um, that, that we should all worry about. I don't know where it's going to lead and I don't know how it's going to happen. You know, I, as you know, I tend to play the long game by trying to educate the people who I hope will be leading in the future and will do something reasonable. But uh, so far, I have no evidence to say that reasonable things will actually happen. Well, I think that's a great note to end on, Dr. Waldo. Thank you for joining <laughs> us. And thank you all for joining thank us you. as well. Be on the lookout for those podcasts. <laughs>